Welcome to Inside the Archives. I'm your host, Marty Rosenbaum, XRT's digital content producer and all things social media. As a reminder, you can now find the podcast on iTunes. All you need to do is search for Inside the Archives in the iTunes store and you'll be able to subscribe to the podcast, leave us a rating and review, and listen to every single episode we've released thus far. You can also share the podcast with your friends on social media via email, snail mail, however way you want to do it. I don't care. As long as you're spreading the love of the podcast, just know that I appreciate it. So hit that subscribe button on iTunes. And while you're at it, share with your music-loving friends who want to hear XRT content on demand. I'm also on Twitter at Marty Rosenbaum. That's M-A-R-T-Y-R-O-S-E-N-B-A-U-M. Follow me and mention you're a podcast listener, and you know what? I'll give you a shout-out on the next podcast. You got any questions or comments about it? I'm going to give the love back to you guys since you guys helped made this podcast a success so far. So find me on Twitter at Marty Rosenbaum. And I am psyched about today's show, especially with how rapidly media has evolved over the past couple of years. And we'll be discussing this matter with XRT's news anchor and co-host of The Morning Show, Mary Dixon. We also have a couple of news items and a major announcement coming later on in the podcast, so stay tuned, and in the meantime, enjoy this episode of Inside the Archives. Access to information has been simpler than ever. With devices that provide a gateway to answer any question you have, it's pretty easy to get overwhelmed. Couple that with the rate at which news is disseminated, and it's enough to make your head spin. One consistent, though, through all the change in media, has been Mary Dixon on your radio. As the longtime co-host and news anchor of the XRT Morning Show, Mary keeps Chicago informed every morning with news, weather, and traffic. And as an award-winning journalist, Mary has taken XRT listeners inside major events that have helped shape our nation. And right now, I'm proud to have her join me on the podcast today as we discuss the unique perspective that she has in 2018 how the evolution of media affects the way we relay information. And we'll also dive into the longstanding relationship that music has with current events and how it acts as a social commentary. And of course, I'd be remiss if we did not include embarrassing Lynn Bramer stories. <laughs> so you get a full slate of topics on the podcast today. Mary, Man, welcome in. You, thank you, Marty. Gosh, you make me sound so classy. Well, you are. You are. <laughs> so I was reading a uh, recent interview that you did with another blog. And it was a five-question interview, and you stated that your mission is to nudge the world into being a little smarter and having a bit more fun. Have yeah, you been... Oh, the aesthetic lens five questions. Yeah. Okay, great. Um, have you been successful? Yeah, you know, I think the point is to have a goal, and then if you're always working on it, then and it's a good goal to have, um, you're never satisfied. Just like Steve Earle, I ain't ever satisfied. Um, I don't know if we'll ever get there, Marty, mm-hmm. but... Um, I think the the biblical exhortation to, you know, cast the light you have, you know, to to show the light you have in the darkness, uh, that always applies in any era and uh, certainly now. Yeah. Well, and especially now more than ever, it seems like anyone can be a quote unquote journalist when you're relaying information to people. And the thing that fascinates me the most is we seem to be at a crossroads in which traditional journalistic practices I don't know if they've gone by the wayside, but they've shifted into a new acceptance for getting information as quickly as possible. As someone that has come up, you know, with that traditional journalist background, Mm -hmm. what's your take on that situation and how do you balance the two? 
Well, this has always been the push and pull of journalism. I mean, you know, from from the time that that radio started and you weren't getting dispatches in the newspaper that were two weeks old, there has been this sort of tension between getting the story, being first with the story, and getting the story right. That is a constant, as with the need to tell the story, as with the need for people in a free country to have unfettered access to that information and to hold their leaders accountable. Um, Those are the constants. We have different tools to do that with, and they move at different speeds. And it really started ramping up when you started having a 24-hour news cycle when CNN started, you know, and that's already 20 years ago, for crying out loud, or maybe more. Dang, I think it's already more. Yeah. Um, So there's always that push and pull of get the story first, get the story right. And I have learned um, over this time that the most important thing is to get it right. But if you don't get it out there first, you kind of don't get credit. And journalists like getting credit for that stuff. I also think for everyone who is not a journalist or a citizen journalist or what have you, because information moves so quickly, because you can send out a 280-word tweet in a in a less than a minute, um, it's more important than ever that we learn how to be discerning. Mm-hmm. It's more important than ever that when you see something flash up on your phone, that you take a moment to say, who is this source? Who is this reporter? What is this news outlet? It doesn't have to be the Washington Post, although that is a really good news source. Um, but you need to be discerning about where this media is coming from, where the reporter is coming from, is it an opinion piece or an analysis piece, which are different things and can give you new information, but they're coming from a certain point of view. You need to take that into account. And I think it's hard because there's so much going on and people are going on in their daily lives um, to ask people to stop down and take a moment and to be discerning. Sometimes people can feel like that's too much. But If we are to maintain a healthy democracy, if we are to maintain a civil society, it is imperative that everyone on every part of the political spectrum is discerning about the information that they're taking in, that they understand that stuff they don't like isn't necessarily fake news, and and that they try to have a steady diet of all points of view. Mm-hmm. And 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 that there are such things as facts. There are hard facts. A person did say this on the Senate floor. That's a fact. What that person said may not be true. And you need to be able to tell the difference in that. Right. And it's easier than ever to spread misinformation, yes. to spread stuff that may contain half-truths. And I, I've seen that firsthand when news comes down, like when Tom Petty died. Mm-hmm. It was a crazy cycle to be in, and you know, I want I want to hear your thoughts on something like this. But I remember scrolling across Twitter, and I first saw that TMZ tweet that Tom Petty had been rushed to the hospital with no other information. And whenever I see TMZ, they have the reputation for they've gotten a better reputation for breaking actual news, but you don't know if it's rumor or not. And all of a sudden, they send that out to their over several million followers, and all it takes is one person to hit the retweet button, and someone they're following to hit the retweet button. And for me, it's, you know, hard to discern whether or not that's real, but you still want to 
get that out there because it is pertinent. Right. That that was a tricky one. And I was on the phone with Lynn Bramer and Marty Leonard's because they were on the air that day. And um, and if you if you would have told me 10 years ago, I'd be saying, well, TMZ is really credible on these kind of stories. I would have laughed at you. <laughs> but they are. Yeah. I mean, it's one of the things they're good at. So now when I see TMZ says someone is gravely ill or has died, it is one piece of the puzzle saying, you know, I think this is credible. Now, Tom Petty is a person and he has a family. And when someone's rushed to the hospital and is having a, a life-threatening event, things can be, there's a lot of gray area. And so um, I, I think his daughter was upset about the huge amount of coverage that day. And, you know, the story came out that he had died and then the authorities at the hospital in L.A. were walking it back. And I suspect it was because, and we don't know this for sure right now, but I suspect it was because they were getting family members there because it mm. happened pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. And it was unexpected. And um, you, their job is to take care of the family first and the survivors. It's not to take care of us. Um, so what we knew was essentially true. It's just they weren't ready to release it yet. But because he was such a big and beloved star, the story got out anyway. And that's one of those times where, you know, we could have waited a little longer to report it. But what we reported was correct. Right. And and it was sad. But one of the reasons that's such a big story is because he was so beloved and when something like that happens and it's so unexpected and the person is so relatively young, you want to be able to celebrate them. And that's really where I think a lot of that was coming from, even from the reporters and the media outlets. It's like, wow, everyone loves Tom Petty. It's a shame that he has gone. We mm-hmm. didn't realize that was coming. Um, and that kind of adds to the enormity of that situation. Right. And he's not the first person who's had an unexpected death like that. He certainly won't be the last person who has an unexpected death and whose life will be celebrated because they were a universally beloved figure. Um, I I will say when Prince died, mm -hmm. um, that was a that was a case where uh, I was at home because it was, you know, a little later in the day. And when something like this happens, the first thing I recommend, particularly if it's someone like Prince who lived in what, you know, the coast call flyover country because he was in Minneapolis, <laughs> um, the first thing you want to do is look to the local news outlets because they are there. Those are human beings on the ground who have, you know, the contact numbers for the medical examiner and the sheriff and have someone who lives across the street calling them saying, hey, I saw an ambulance at Paisley Park. They're the ones who are going to know what's really going on. And if you can see, even on Twitter, you know, if you can find those local reporters who can give you a better picture of what's going on, you know, take an extra 10 minutes before you before you push the button, before you say, oh, this is definitely what's happening. Find out what the local folks are reporting because they're just going to have a better grasp of the story. Mm-hmm. And, and that can help you to be more discerning. Yeah. Well, that led perfectly into my next question, which was how can folks who maybe aren't trained to find information, who just follow a couple of major news accounts, discern whether or not stuff like this is real or it's just rumor? 
You know, one thing I'm really happy about is in Illinois, they, we recently passed a law, the legislature passed a law uh, requiring civics education for high schoolers. So my high schooler last year had civics. Mm-hmm. And one of the units is how to process information so that you know it's credible. And I think that is fantastic. The McCormick Foundation helped to promote this law and helped with the curriculum for it. And some of the stuff that my kid was coming home with from this class was stuff that I would tell anyone, which is double check your sources. Is this an established news organization? Is it an established news organization that is known to be kind of conservative or kind of liberal? Um, And do you have a mix of those organizations in your news feed? Are there reporters that you trust who you have seen to have done a good job? You know, again, it requires you to pay attention, and a lot of people don't want to do that. But if you wanted a short list of of organizations to follow, I would say, you know, you could follow the Washington Post, the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, um, The Hill, which is an online blog, also Politico, online in Washington, D.C., and branching out all over. Um, and then, of course, the local uh, local organizations, local media, Chicago Tribune, Chicago Sun-Times, uh, WBEZ and NPR, which I realize, you know, they're another broadcast organization, but they do a very good job at this. Our friends at WBBM News Radio and CBS Chicago, those are good accounts to follow because they're on the scene mm. and they're... They're credible. They have journalistic standards. And you can start there. And you can follow some of those reporters who are covering topics that you're interested in. And if if you find that what they're reporting doesn't jibe with what you know to be true, then unfollow them, mm-hmm. you know. But for the most part, I think if you go with that short list, you'd be doing pretty well. Go straight to the source in a yeah, nutshell. And, and I realize these are pretty mainstream media things, and some people have an attitude about them. Mm-hmm. But... I find that they will get you started, you know, and they will get you started in a way where you know where they're coming from. And if you disagree with them, that's fine. Right. If you disagree with the headline, I mean, I do that all the time because editors and reporters don't always see eye to eye on what the angle of the story is. Mm-hmm. But um, but they're a good starting point and you can get the hard data and then you can decide what to think about it, which is the point. Right. Now... Let's take a step back to something you mentioned earlier in the conversation. 24-hour news channels such as CNN, mm-hmm. um, Fox News have been around for 20, 30 years maybe. Oh, yeah. Still is seemingly, you know, in the greater scheme of things, not that long of a time span. But it seems like eons ago where those were groundbreaking. And when I was putting this podcast together, one of the themes that stuck out was that media is evolving in waves. You had going from local radio news to nightly news, nightly morning newscasts, going from there to 24-hour news channels with CNN. From there, you get the advent of the internet and blogging, where people can blog any time of the day. And then you go from blogging to social media, where you're essentially condensing down news stories into bullet point factoids. Mm-hmm. What do you think that next wave is, and how do you as a journalist react to each individual wave? I think delivery systems will become ever more diffuse. 
You know, we have podcasts like this. We have more social media outlets and and more ways of communicating in that way. There, um, there are fewer standards governing. The farther out you get from the old media, there are fewer standards and fewer watchdogs, which is not to say that they can't do good work in journalism, mm-hmm. because they certainly can. Um, but people still need good information. People still need to be discerning about their information. I know I'm kind of beating a dead horse here now. Um, It doesn't matter what the delivery method is so long as the people who are using it and contributing to it are using their noggins. I mean, it really kind of doesn't matter where we go from here as long as we're using our noggins. And I I fear sometimes that people aren't. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you mentioned CNN and Fox News and, and cable TV news in particular. And sometimes they are still so very useful for breaking news for things that are happening on a big scale because that is still where a lot of people will see what's going on. But because they have that 24-7 demand for content, this thing where they have a story and then you see four talking heads and everyone's arguing over each other because they all have different points of view about what's going on and different opinions, I just don't consider that news. Mm. And I fear that people do consider it news. I mean, a long time ago, we used to have offices in um, the NBC Tower. Boy, it was a long time ago already, <laughs> wasn't it? Uh, and. And and even before that, I worked for WGN-TV, and I freelanced for CNN as a reporter. Um, and I would have people coming up to me when I was working with a camera crew, and they would say, oh, well, I saw this on the news, and I know that this is what's going on. I say, oh, really? Where'd you see that? I saw it on Jerry Springer's show. <laughs> I'm like, mm, that is... That is not the news. So this isn't a new problem, this, Mm -hmm. you know, consider your sources problem. And, you know, having come up the elevator with a number of Jerry Springer's guests in the NBC Tower, I got to say, if if you're calling that the news, then you are part of the problem. (laughs) Please stop doing that. Right. And, And it applies to whatever delivery system, you know, oh, I saw it on the Internet. I saw it on Twitter. Well, that's not a source. Right. It's a delivery method. It's, you know, you have to know where you're getting it. So how do you take that and apply it to your own practices or yourself as a reporter? Um, Let me give you an example. Uh, A couple of years ago, the Supreme Court, because, God, I loved covering courts when I was a reporter because it's like being a banker. You got a schedule. They work eight to four. They break for lunch. It's the best, except for when it goes to a jury, a case goes to a jury, and then you gotta, you don't know when you're going to be around. Um, but Supreme Court, they have a very regimented schedule. They like to wait till the end of June to release their big decisions. So you know, like, oh, these are the cases that they haven't ruled on yet. I think today we're going to get the, the case that uh, decided whether Obamacare was going to stay on the books, because there was a very serious challenge to Obamacare. And Supreme Court rulings, those things are thick. If you ever read through one, you know, they can be quite lengthy and they're written in this very high-toned legalese. And, you know, it takes some deciphering. And there's one uh, blog in particular I like to follow on Supreme Court News. It's called SCOTUS Blog. They're on Twitter. They're great. And they have a great live blog, you know, where they're kind of 
they're making jokes about, you know, what's going on. They're like, oh, there are this many boxes. That means this many cases. So they give you a little of the inside baseball. But they also have very measured good reporting on what the issues are at hand and what the justices are saying about each case. And so this case was coming down about the Affordable Care Act. And I had... SCOTUS blog up on my screen, and I was. we knew that either Obamacare was going to be allowed or not allowed, and that would be a big deal for the people listening. So Lynn was on the air, and I was like, okay, sometime I think around 930 I might have to break in with this, and I told our boss about it, and he was fine because it was just going to be a short report. And I had CNN on in the background, and, you know, someone handed their reporter this thick decision and it was a very complicated decision. It was a five to four. And John Roberts sided with the Obama administration saying, yes, you have the right to tax people who don't do something that you want, which was essentially the the requirement, the individual requirement. Um, but CNN got it wrong. The, the reporter on CNN initially misread it because they were in such a hurry to get it on. Wow. And so for a couple of minutes, they were reporting that Obamacare had been overturned. It had been rejected and was thrown off the books. And our boss at the time, Norm, and Lynn were in the studio looking at me like, okay, are we going? Are we going? And I'm like, nope, play another song. I don't think this is right because the SCOTUS blog folks had not weighed in on it yet. And I was trying to read through the decision. And I'm just like, this is not it yet. And I just, I waited for a song and I waited for two songs. And I had an intern with me who was like, come on, we got to go with this. And I'm like, let's get it right. <laughs> and then, you know, another five minutes later, CNN had to say, oh, we got this wrong. Yeah. This is what the ruling is. And so I, again, I have the luxury of not having a 24 hour news cycle. I can do it at will. And that gives me a little wiggle room and also allows me to think a little more clearly. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I wanted to be timely with it, but I didn't want to screw it up. That would just be bad. Yeah. Well, you've had both experiences, as you mentioned, spending time as a reporter on CNN and mm -hmm. now doing news at XRT for all these years. Two questions. You know, first, what was that like having to report for a 24-hour news cycle where there is that urge to be the first one to get the story, to get the scoop on things? Second question is, really, what benefit is there to the consumer if you are the first one to report it outside of the journalist getting credit or the organization getting credit? Well, the thing with getting credit is it means you can brag about yourself a little bit and say, well, you should listen to us because we were first with the story and we had it down. That's really all there is to it. And journalists are weird people, you know, like when when i was working in the state house in springfield as a as an intern um you know you'd get to the end of session they would literally hold the clock at midnight so they could get through all of their bills you know for the passage before the deadline before you had to go to a supermajority and we would just be running up and down the halls of the state house from one chamber to another you know i think the year i was an intern there they they did a income tax surcharge to help you know, pay for White Sox Park. Um, you know, they're a weird breed, reporters. So some of that is just the way we're built. Um, and, and when I was a reporter for CNN, I was doing freelance stories that were more, I was not having to feed that beast. I was just doing, you know, your usual packages that were about regional stories. So, and that was fun. They had very specific needs. 
Um, but I did not have to, to feed that breaking news beast, thankfully. On Channel 9, we did a little more. And I learned, like, I could work all day on a really interesting story. And then there'd be a fire at 8 o'clock and you'd have to go cover the fire because mm-hmm. fire is pretty. You know, fire is pretty. It's dramatic. Makes good TV. Yeah, you don't know what's going to happen next yeah. and stuff like that, or car chases happen. So yeah. let's move, move moving a little bit forward. Your Twitter account at Marielle Dixon <laughs> is a yes. great follow because you know it, it it serves as a refuge from all the craziness that does go on on Twitter, mm-hmm. but you do strive to inform people. You know, very much like you're doing, like you do on air every morning on the XRT Morning Show. Um, how has your use of that evolved over the years? I really resisted social media. I was one of those people saying, I don't need the time suck. and um, But I was persuaded to to do it because, you know, delivery methods change. Uh, and my, my husband, who is also a writer and reporter, said, you're crazy not to go on Twitter. All the time you waste on Facebook, because, of course, I had gotten onto Facebook first, like everyone else. Mm-hmm. He's like, Twitter is like a news feed. Depending on who you follow, you can really just keep up with what's going on. You want to know about that. And I'm like, ah, oh, yeah, you're right. And, and I'll tell you, kids, my whole philosophy on social media, I want you to hear this and I want you to think about it. Don't put it on social media if you wouldn't say it into a microphone to a half million people. That spares you a lot of damage, spares you a lot of trouble. You'll never get in trouble if you follow this rule. You know, do you want your mom reading it and and being okay with it? That's what you put on social media. Don't we we don't care what you had for lunch, and we we don't want to see you flashing your whatever. <laughs> Nobody wants to see it. Well, that may not be true <laughs> given the recent events on your Twitter account, where there's well, seemingly several dudes just openly changing in front of your office window. <laughs> I did not ask for this. Can I just point this out? Okay, we're in the Prudential now, right? And across the way, across Bobine Court, uh, the high rise at Lake and Michigan, there is an apartment facing us where apparently we're going to have to have a bake sale so they can buy some drapes. <laughs> and it's like this dude who's getting up every day during the 730 traffic report. And I also think it's because the summer solstice came and the angle of the sun has changed. And so I am getting a full... Monty show every morning between 7.30 and 8 as this guy gets ready for... Now Now I'm at the point where I'm like, is he going to wear the blue button down or the white button down? You, have, you guys have gotten to know each other quite well. I don't know if he's gotten to know you. You've gotten to know him quite well in this case. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know if he's an XRT listener. If he were, he'd put up some blinds maybe. Well, we'll see. Or, or put on a better show. Orient, I mean, come on, dude. Maybe he enjoys the free coverage also that you're giving him. <laughs> you know, this could be the but platform to start him. As a follower pointed out, this is what Twitter is for. Exactly. You know, it can't all be business. Sometimes it's just a little slice of life reportage, life in the big city. Guys, if you're in a high rise, we can see you. <laughs> we can see you. If, if you're into that, go with God. But, you know. Just know someone may be out there watching if you leave yeah. the blinds up and, you know, we'll take it from there. So once again, Mary, Mary's, Mary's Twitter account, if you want to follow the latest happenings on Prudential Dude, is at Mary L. Dixon. <laughs> Give her a follow. Highly recommended outside of the Prudential Dude shenanigans that have <laughs> occurred recently. I try to keep it interesting. Yeah. Well, it definitely is. So let's shift gears a little bit to the music that we play here on XRT. Love it. You know, a lot of it serves as social commentary, even if it doesn't come across it on the surface right away. A lot of it is reacting to events of the time, current events, other things that may have been going on. How do you see music as an outlet for artists to talk about what's going on? Um. Well, it always has been. 
I mean, always, since forever, since Mozart, since, you know, cave people. Um, So especially these days, because of social media, every now and then, you know, I'll see someone telling us or telling artists to stick to the music. And, you know, I just don't have enough time to sit them down and say, hang on a second here. Do you realize that before it was rhythm and blues, it was race music? That's what they called it in the 1920s to the 1940s. They didn't even change it to the R&B chart and billboard until 1949 because there was an entire category of music by African-American artists that was marketed to African-American people owned by white folks called race music. And at the time, it wasn't seen as a derogatory thing until you move into the rock and roll era when, you know, you had people who were choosing to listen to, you know, either they could be listening to the sweet sounds of Pat Boone in the 1950s or they were starting to tune into folks like Lil Richard and Chuck Berry, you know, and it would be called in a derogatory fashion race music, I believe. Like, that was always political. Mm-hmm. You know, Bob Dylan and Woody Guthrie were always reflecting what was going on in the world and the forms that they chose to reflect it. You know, that folk music w- was part of what they were reflecting. Uh, you know, w- was it Woody Guthrie who had the guitar that read, you know, this this machine kills fascists? I think that was Woody. I, I think that was him, yeah. So, you know, you go through the whole history of rock and roll and please, please me. You know, the Beatles coming out with please, please me, which is about sex, (laughs) (laughs) which was not polite to discuss, guys, (laughs) Um, you know, and, and wearing their hair long. That was a reflection of current events. It was a reflection of the fact that you had this big generation coming of age as teenagers and demanding their own entertainment that wasn't their parents. And it was also, by the time you got into the late 60s, it was about the civil rights movement and about the Vietnam War. And yeah, some people don't like it. Some people didn't like it then, and they don't like it now. But you know, now you have at Lollapalooza, Matt from Cage the Elephant climbing up the soundboard in a dress and fishnets. You know, and that he's he's a direct descendant of David Bowie and the mm-hmm. New York Dolls, who it with the gender bending and you know the guys in lipstick were absolutely pushing all kinds of establishment buttons. They were using rock and roll to do that. It was always part. It was baked in to the music. Yeah. So you know, and you, you go from all of these different bands that had overtly or more implicit political messages like. The Clash, like Bruce Springsteen, like Neil Young, like Green Day, like Radiohead, who recorded an entire album called Hail to the Thief, which was about the election of George W. Bush. And they don't even live here. So, you know, and and then you also have, you know, Beyonce kicking off Coachella with Lift Every Voice and Sing, which is considered the alternate national anthem for for people of color. You know, which at my kids' grade school, when they have Martin Luther King Day celebrations, they stand up and everyone holds hands and sings Lift Every Voice and Sing. Mm. You have Beyonce, one of the biggest stars in the world, singing that song and putting her spin on it, you know, tipping her hat to the historically black colleges, you know, and she is a direct descendant of Mavis Staples and the Staples Singers talking about Freedom Highway, Mm -hmm. you know. This is what music can do. It can reach you in your gut and in your heart, and it can make you look at things in a different way. And maybe you don't agree with it. Maybe you don't like it, 
but and, and maybe you just want to like dance to lemonade. But the fact is, the artists making this music, by and large, have a purpose for that. You know, the really good ones, the ones who last, they're trying to tell you something about their lives, about their experience. And you can either take that in and respect that, or you can be a a shallow doofus. Mm -hmm. Your choice. Well, one of the things that I love about music is that it takes some effort on the listener to understand the message, even if the artist may feel like they're putting it as bluntly as they can. (laughs) And in a lot of cases, they certainly are. And it still goes over people's heads. It it is a challenge to the listener to try and pick up on these messages to understand what they're expressing. Now, in 2018, when you have Twitter and a lot of artists who are very active and putting their own opinions and thoughts as plain as day saying, this is what I believe. I believe Mm -hmm. in X, Y, Z. I support A, B, C. Do you still think that a lot of artists are putting that creative effort into expressing their thoughts and music when they do have this outlet to let people know how they stand on issues? It it depends on the artist, doesn't it? It really depends on the artist. And there are some who do both. And I, I don't think anyone who's being that active on social media is, is downplaying what they're doing in their music. I, I think it really depends on the artist. And, you know, you, you bring up a good point. And one of Wilco's best songs, What Light, is really about creating something and releasing it to the world. And maybe people aren't going to experience it the same way that you intended. Mm-hmm. And that's okay, you know, because... You, you've done your thing and you've put it out there and it's for everyone else to consider or not. Right. Well, before I let you go, we have to address the elephant in the room. Oh, dear. It's a man that you see every morning at 530 a.m. We'll or, say it's a pleasure so. for now, but I may be corrected by the end of this. <laughs> Lynn Bramer. <laughs> Spill the beans. All right. Well, we'll, we'll, we'll for, the, for the sake of time and not uh, stepping on anyone's toes... <laughs> You know, what, what's something that people may not realize about Lynn that you've had the pleasure of getting to know after all these years and seeing him at this time of day? Oh, geez. So many things. Um, I would say the relationship you hear on the radio is the relationship that we have, pretty much. Uh, we've known each other a really long time because, of course, I started working at XRT when I was 10. Um, I don't know. He's a big goofball. You know, he's a... English philosophy student, you know, and and goes into flights of fancy. He's also kind of a big, dumb guy. He <laughs> showed up to work one day wearing two different kinds of shoes. And that's a true story. That is a true story. Um, you know, he blocks off his calendar for October just in case the Cubs are going to be in the World Series. And he was doing this a long time before 2016. A long time. Uh, he's a total fanboy of chefs and certain musicians. Um, he could be a real pain in the ass. I, I don't think I'm overstating it there. Um, he likes bacon, uh, and he likes margaritas and gimlets. Uh, but he can be real precious about, like, don't bring him, you know, run-of-the-mill fast food. Mm-hmm. It has to be really good fast food, because otherwise... Mr. Bramer will not have it. <laughs> well, got standards. <laughs> put it nicely. So I don't know. Uh, he's the guy who, you know, he, he wants to walk in the room and everybody knows his name. Mm-hmm. You know, he's, he's like our norm. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, Mary, thank you so much for taking the time out to chat with me today and uh, coming on the podcast. It's always a pleasure, Marty. Big thanks again to Mary Dixon for coming on the podcast today and discussing media, Lynn Bramer, and music, and, oh, of course, Prudude. So if you want to find her on Twitter, you can do so at Mary L. Dixon, and you can find me on Twitter at Marty Rosenbaum. So a couple of pieces on 93XRT.com have caught my eye lately, and the first was our most recent Taste of Chicago show with the Flaming Lips. I had the opportunity to join Marty Leonard's backstage before the show started, to speak with frontman Wayne Coyne. Now, usually these pre-show interviews are capped at 10 minutes, maybe 15 minutes if the time allows for it, and management is usually pretty strict on the time that we have to speak with the artists, which I totally understand that aspect, as all artists have a pre-show routine, and we don't really want to infringe on what they need to do to get ready for the show, so totally understand that, and for the most part, that's the usual case when you're speaking with an artist ahead of a concert. Well... Wayne Coyne and Marty Leonard spoke for a good 30 minutes uninterrupted. In fact, there was not really a formal introduction to the interview. They just started speaking when Wayne rolled into the room, and the content of their conversation was so good that I decided just to start rolling video to capture it. So one of the pieces that stood out to me was Coyne discussing the Flaming Lips elaborate stage show and, A, how it came to be, but how it really served as a mechanism for the band who are introverts, to become comfortable on stage and playing music in front of people. Here's a clip I'm going to share with you from the interview. It became enough stuff that Mm -hmm. we didn't have to feel like you're actually just watching us play our guitars and sing. It's like we're putting on this thing, and yet it is us. You're not really watching us like you would be watching Beyonce's butt or something, you know. It's like... You know, we're we're an element of this, but we're not the, the, the main focus. The main focus is the music and the show. Right. And that, that helped us, I think, mm-hmm. get through the the introvert, you know, weirdos that we really are, and yet still embrace the idea of, of being occasionally like mainstream entertainment, which I think is wonderful. You know, I mean, I think it'd be a... It'd be a horrible world if everybody was in a weirdo band like I am. You know, I'm glad there are people who just yeah. want to go see some good music on the weekend. You know, <laughs> I think Coin brings up a really cool point how audience members may not just want to watch them on stage playing instruments. I mean, every single band does that, and I don't blame them. That's fine. But they're really creating an overall experience. And you can find them talking more about their stage show and their other theatrics right now on 93XRT.com. 2018 is also the 50-year anniversary of Led Zeppelin, and outside of a couple of remastered pieces of music and a photo book, there hasn't really been too much activity. However, a new report from the UK paper The Daily Star indicates there could be something big on the horizon. A well-placed source told the paper, Everyone around the band is buzzing. Jimmy and Robert are talking again and discussing how to celebrate the big anniversary. Realistically, this will be the last time that the band has a reason to reunite. At the moment, there are many things on the table being discussed, and obviously playing live is one of them. If they won't play, then they will get other stars out on stage playing their hits, and then they would join in. Wow. So, A, huge news, if true, but I don't want to damper anyone's mood. It's also important to indicate that the Daily Star is a tabloid paper, and maybe a little bit sensational on their headlines, but this is certainly something that catches our attention. Robert Plant caught wind of this report, and responded to it during an interview with Ireland Papers, The Independent, and said, 
Only in a chip shop in Camden Town. I think that's about as close as we'll get to it. We are very pleased and glad with our very, very short career. If you think about it, it's only 12 years. We get on okay, but you know. So, so much for that. <laughs> but we'll still keep our eyes and ears open for any other news on the Led Zeppelin reunion front. But it doesn't really sound too promising that a live show is going to happen. Well, I promised everyone a major announcement at the beginning of the podcast, and if you made it this far, your patience is rewarded, and I am not going to let you down. Starting on August 1st, Radio.com and the Radio.com app will be the exclusive digital home to stream 93XRT. If you already listened to us on the Radio.com app, you won't need to do anything. You're already doing, you'll already be able to listen to XRT once August 1st rolls around, but if you listen to us on other services like TuneIn, Make the switch today and download the Radio.com app for free on the App Store or Google Play. And for those of you who listen to us on Alexa, all you need to do is say, Alexa, play WXRT, and you'll be able to stream us. Well, that's all the time we have for today's show. Thanks again to my guest, Mary Dixon, and to you for listening to the podcast and sharing the love of the podcast. As a reminder, we are on iTunes, so go ahead and subscribe to the show, leave a rating and a review, and share the podcast with your friends. You can find me on Twitter at Marty Rosenbaum, that's M-A-R-T-Y-R-O-S-E-N-B-A-U-M, and follow 93XRT on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. All of our handles are at 93XRT. For 93XRT and Inside the Archives, I'm Marty Rosenbaum.